I'm long gone down by the waterfall. It isn't that I hate the world. But the sun comes on like a super ball, like a big Orpheus, and this is podcast 180, entitled Metropolitan Life. I have had more trouble with this podcast than any other of the 180 podcasts in PZ's podcast, because for some reason, I have been hung up on the belief that what interests me in relation to the podcast isn't going to interest you. <laughs> to you with the living, this mash was meant to. Well, I'm not at all convinced, and I've been sort of just uh, hung up on an inner um, verboten that you won't be actually interested because I want to tell the story of a kind of epiphany that happened recently that to me is very substantial and important, but to you may be nothing more than simply Paul's story. But the, um, the, the reasoning to do it is because you get to the point in life when you realize that all the times you try to make a statement or you try to kind of uh, create an impression or present material in the hopes of making an impact, that that is kind of foolish because you are not in charge of the impact. You have no real hold on the consequences or control over them. And in fact, things that you think are important uh, may be completely unimportant to others, and things that you think are unimportant may prove to be really quite relevant and of interest to others. And so I throw this out, perhaps 
as some of the artists I admire would do, simply for its own sake, believing that because it speaks to me, it might speak to you. I had such an interesting example of this recently because um, I, I, I came to realize what a fool I've been all these years to say certain things about marriage and relationships, especially in my teaching and in the pulpit and in personal pastoral care, because it, it, they, they've, they've reached zero actual hit. The reason I say that somewhat, um, I, I hope you'll get a slightly amused feeling from my own look in the eye because uh, I was reading an interview that's been heavily publicized with Rick Warren and Kay Warren about marriage. And it's a recent interview, and I'm always interested in what Rick uh, Warren and his wife have to say about that subject because of the tragic loss of their son. And I admire Rick Warren, had a very, very interesting uh, and uh, really meaningful connection with him once personally and uh, admire him very much. However, when I read this interview about the four seasons of marriage, it seemed to me to be the absolute pinnacle of, uh, of, um, of, 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 of um, oh, how do I say this without seeming critical? It seemed to me completely uninsightful about the nature of marriage. I'm no authority. I've just got, you know, 40 years behind me, but I've, gosh, I've done a lot of thinking about it, and I've certainly done so much work with people who are preparing to be married or who are having stumbling and trouble in their marriage. And the basic view of uh, Kay and Rick Warren seems to be that marriage is cumulative and that if you put money in the bank when the sun is shining, when things are well in your relationship, you can somehow draw on that cash account or um, um, take from it uh, when you are on a rainy day and when there's nothing in the bank, you can... um, pull back on old investments to keep you going. And that is an idea that I've heard very often, but I've, uh, what does Peter Cushing say of ancient Egyptian religion? Well, I completely rejected it. I I don't see uh, marriage as cumulative because so many marriages I see and know have ended in a heartbeat of 30 years of marriage thrown out the window because of a sudden moment uh, that leads one of the parties to a different direction. In a moment, we are on the cliff forever, uh, and yet that doesn't mean it's not the greatest thing in the world, which I believe it is, and absolutely hold to it. But when I read this, I said, you know, all the teaching, all the work I've done, if everybody's reading this interview and thinking that that's what it's all about, well, then what have I been doing? Well, the answer is you've been doing nothing. Well, maybe a few people have been affected by it, but in terms of any kind of real, quote, legacy, end of quote, I got nothing on, <laughs> they, I got nothing on that, you know. So you say to yourself, well, why don't you just do what you think is right? Why don't you just say what you actually believe? Why, uh, why go far afield in terms of attempting to alter the environment or, you know, going out there to change things when um, you're confronted after 40 years of work with its almost opposite, even though from very good and fine and sincere and I think really tested individuals, and yet uh, it's as if you never breathed and lived. So just say what you have to say. Think of yourself as being an artist who's saying what you have to say. And so I'm going to say what I have to say, and I'm going to describe in uh, this episode called Metropolitan Life, very briefly, an extraordinary and really quite dramatic experience I had really just the other day. It's a little bit like the conclusion of Wild Strawberries, which has certainly got to be one of the most um, almost caricaturable of all foreign movies today when the um, 
despite, uh, as someone said, Lloyd Fonville said to me, well, despite all the cliches, it's pretty darn good. Well, that ending when the professor is uh, dreaming and he may even be close to his physical death and he sees a kind of tableau of an early memory of his idyllic childhood by a lake with a boy fishing and um, his mother and his sister and someone else and he's drawn into this tableau of an idyllic childhood. Well, I had a kind of moment like that that really did ring true. Uh, the Germans used the word das Erstaunen to mean wonder and I was really in a state of wonder. So very briefly, this is what it was. Mary and I were at the Metropolitan Museum seeing the Thomas Hart Benton mural the other day, which is worth flying a thousand miles to see, but we were just in town for the day. And having had a very lovely luncheon at one of the restaurants in the museum, we began to head back to the subway. And I said to her, why don't we just take a quick pass just south of the museum, just north of 79th Street, and walk in Central Park, because I think this is where we used to go when I was little. Well, the background of that is... For what it's worth, I grew up in New York City, was born there, and lived there till I was 10 years old. And I lived in kind of a square uh, enclave that's sometimes called the Upper East Side. The southern uh, barrier of it would have been 59th Street over to the river, then uh, East River, 57th Street, actually, because I grew up on the east side, 57th Street on the river. And then um, the East River, and then north would be probably 96th Street at the extreme end, but more like 86th Street, and then over to Fifth Avenue and down, bounded on the West by Central Park. And what happened in this rather idyllic childhood that in many ways I was given to live with all the gaps that are there as well that have branded one, nevertheless, very good things. And my mother, bless her heart, used to take me and my sister to church every Sunday. My father would never go because he was not uh, a churchgoer. And um, we would go with my mother to church on Park Avenue and 63rd Street, and at the end of the service, the children being downstairs in the Sunday school, we would come up and find our parents who were animatedly having a coffee hour and meeting one another and having their community, which was very real and very vibrant and lively. And we'd pull on my mom's uh, dress or on her pocketbook or jacket, say, Mom, when are we going? Let's go. Let's have lunch because we were hungry and we were children. We didn't like to stay in one place for long. So finally, my mother would go and our pattern was to go with about six other people, adults with children, friends of my mom's and friends of ours, and about six to eight of us would go every single Sunday, walking up Park Avenue. It was a good walk after church, making a brief stop at Central Presbyterian Church to see somebody's friend, and I saw that as totally lugubrious because I'd never been inside churches like that that were dark and beautiful, but very heavy for a little child who's used to sort of a white, clear glass colonial interior. And um, after our lugubrious stop, we'd walk up uh, Park Avenue till 79th Street and then over to 5th, and there was the Metropolitan at 82nd Street. And we would have uh, stop and have lunch at the wonderful cafeteria there, all swept away now, which was in the shape of a Roman atrium with skylit atrium with wonderful sculptures of dancing boys in copper through the fountains with porpoises of very strong Pompeian feel to the sculpture and the fountain. We'd have a wonderful lunch in the peristyle around the fountain. And then my uh, mom and her friends would often go upstairs to, say, the Van Goghs or Titian or whatever the current exhibit was that people were going to, while I would make my way through the armory, which I adored with these wonderful... Um, wooden horses with the real medieval armor and the jousting lances, just fabulous for a child, a little boy, and make my way to the children's library. Now, the children's library in the Met, which no longer exists in that form, 
was um, a absolutely sunny environment, now very old-fashioned because we're talking about the late 50s, but at that time, the height of kind of learning for children. And the librarian, whose name happened to be Shirley Glubach, who later became a very precious and very, very highly valued educator in New York, who absolutely loved imparting knowledge about the arts and literature to young children. And she was passionately gifted and totally committed and became a kind of New York institution. Well, Miss Glubach, as I knew her, would usually be waiting for me. And every Sunday I would come alone and she would have some books out or some records out or some pictures out or some little statuary or kind of toys that related to the arts. And she would teach me each week something about sculpture, painting, Western art, and some form of music. And it was absolutely captivating, and I never missed a Sunday. And after about two hours of this kind of almost tutorial in this idyllic uh, children's uh, landscape of the Metropolitan Museum Children's Library, my mom would come down and collect me, and we'd then walk south on um, Fifth Avenue to 79th, which is where we later lived, or further down, and we'd take a crosstown bus to our earlier place where we lived as little tiny children. And um, it was idyllic, but what we would do characteristically in the fall and in the spring and in the summer if we were there, when the weather was nice, we would sort of go into the um, – behind the Met where Cleopatra's Needle is, which is an Egyptian obelisk which had been brought over to New York long before. And we'd sort of get a popsicle or something and kind of sit in a bench and play in the little playgrounds and child areas that were there. Well, Mary and I last Tuesday were walking south after exiting the museum. And I said, why don't we just go around behind the museum, where the south side of the museum now, and see Cleopatra's Needle. I remembered as a kid, and we walked over. And I said, oh my gosh, I think I remember something more. And I looked over, and there to the left was something more. And it was a memory that I had not had actually um, directly before me uh, in real terms for 60 years, f 55 years. And it was the memory of Turtle Pond, which is a beautiful pond there in the Frederick Law Olmsted designed beauty of Central Park. Very few people, this pond sort of below and a walkway above the pond all the way around it until you get to what's called the Belvedere Castle. Well, the Belvedere Castle on Turtle Pond, with the exception of a new theater or new earth theater called the Delacorte Theater hasn't changed an iota. At least it hadn't changed then. It was exactly the place that it always was. And I hadn't been there for, for 55 years. And to see this, uh, all of a sudden I was catapulted back, you know, in the past. And I was a seven-year-old boy running along the pathway up towards the Belvedere Castle with the great moat that was called Turtle Pond uh, down below running up the castle steps and imagining that I was storming it, that I was a Norman knight with a headpiece or that I had I was trying to dodge uh, molten lead being poured from the battlements or I had a siege ladder or was using a longbow or a crossbow to pick off one of, the, one of the sentries on the top of the castle. It was the most extraordinarily fun environment of complete imagination for a little boy. I was all alone usually because my sister was playing, had another, other, other ideas usually. And... Um, other interests, and there I was, but to actually see it Tuesday and, and to be there, that was beyond any gift that I could have imagined, to see and to be and to have that uh, um, experience again, uh, as I said, like the dying moment or the 
aged moment of the professor and wild strawberries. Haven't, haven't this, hasn't this happened to you ever before? I mean, we live in our heads, right? We are constantly mooning back over something long ago or a lost love or a past love or something that a photograph reminds us of, an attitude that is suddenly brought into our present from the past by virtue of some cue or something we eat or something that we see or something that somebody says or a movie that we see or a piece of music. And we're back there instantaneously. What did Burton Cummings say? Um, We've been together for so long that every second record on the radio seems like our song. Well, you know, there are songs that you have. I'm, I can, I'm certain that you have certain pieces of music that when you hear them, it takes you back instantly to somewhere, someplace in time, somewhere in time with Christopher Reeve. Well, it's rare, however, in my experience, that the actual somewhere in time is the actual same place somewhere geographically and that you are actually physically in the place that you were. I had a little bit of this deja vu long ago in Turkey when we were leading a group to Aphrodisias uh, near Ephesus, inland from Ephesus, and I had not been there for 25 years when I spent a very meaningful and very very poignant summer there at the excavations and all of a sudden to be back in the exact same spot. I couldn't believe it. It had this, ah, uh, well, that's the feeling I had, this erstaunen before this picture of the pathway going uh, just uh, ringing Turtle Pond with its rushes. It looked almost like it could be an English country park. And then up the hill on the pathway, running up there like a little boy, as a little boy, a little boy, to the Belvedere Castle and then looking back at the Met and Cleopatra's Needle. And all that was exposed to me, and I wanted to talk to you about it. I have no other reason to do it but to say it. I have no great message. I'm so wrapped up these days with uh, the work of Robert W. Anderson, the playwright, and I was so amazed to read a play of his the other day that called uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas in his larger four one-act play collection, which was one piece on Broadway called Don't You Know You I can't hear you when the water's running. Great title, right? Well, anyway, it was a success in the 60s, uh, but uh, there's a play in it in which um, a man and his wife have a lengthy and almost tedious, extremely protracted discussion about their ideas about sex as it relates to their adult children and what they feel they should or should not have told their children about sex, who are both some age sort of 14 to 20. And um, it's really about two people who have very different views, the man being more conservative, the woman being more liberal, the wife and the children being in the middle of the sexual revolution and about the pill and contraception. And um, it's just sort of feels almost like a time-bound capsule of attitudes when suddenly in the last, oh, two minutes of the play, it the, the plumb line drops a thousand miles, a thousand leagues under the sea, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And all of a sudden, what was a kind of sociological discussion of sex education and the generation gap turns into something about the deepest loss, the deepest hurt, the deepest miscommunication, the deepest alienation, the deepest threat of death, and the deepest, the, 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 the deepest and most poignant human feelings of failure as a father and as a child, and suddenly something happens that is just miraculous. Well, uh, Robert W. Anderson did not write the play I'll Be Home for Christmas as a way of making a statement about um, the generation gap in 1966. He wrote this about real people, about real persons, something he'd obviously felt and seen and thought himself. And uh, that's what I tried to do in this podcast. I I, uh, have to say, look, I'm not here to, if I were trying to change your mind about something and open your mind to something you might not already be open to, I'd be a complete failure. I can't do it. It's absolutely impossible to do. 
So I'm going to instead simply say what I have to say, which was this kind of Proustian moment, but actually in the spot, in the very place that opened up a kind of light of illumination and beautiful sunlight that, like a big green pearl of the Orpheus song, connected with um, my... Uh, um, deepest archaeology, which in this case is sunlit and happy and joyous and even maternal and protected and uh, open and wildly interested in uh, Pissarro and all the good things of life. And I leave that thought with you and one more time with Big Green Pearl. Thank you very much. I'm long gone down by the waterfall It isn't that I hate the world like a super ball, like a big green pearl. Well, it shines, it shines. Oh, mama, come see. You better rock in the cradle since time began. It's your master of time and rhythm and rhyme. Your fat lover, your candy Upside down with his great roots 